Well, again, thanks for coming. I want to welcome those who are watching us at our Mill Creek campus and those who are watching online. Uh, we're one church in two locations. We have a campus here and one up at Mill Creek, about 20 minutes north of us. And if you're online particularly and kind of gotten accustomed to watching us via the computer, I want to encourage you to really check out one of our campuses that are closest to you because there really isn't anything like being there. Well, I, I want to tell you a true story about uh, President Ronald Reagan, my, one of my favorite presidents anyway. Um, Ronald Reagan, as you know, was uh, almost assassinated and was in the hospital with a gunshot wound. And um, he, when he died, they asked President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, if he would do the, the, the eulogy for President Reagan. And he told the story of how when the president was in the hospital, he'd been there for a few days recovering from this gunshot wound, and one of his aides walked in to bring him some papers to sign. And when he walked into the room, to his amazement, there he found President Reagan on his knees on the floor, wiping up some water with some paper towels. He rushed over there and he said, Mr. President, what, what, what are you doing? And President Reagan said, well, I was worried that my nurse might get in trouble. Now, I want you to just think about that for just a moment. You walk into a hospital room. And there's the leader of the free world, the most powerful man on the planet, who has basically 300 million people at his beck and call, still recovering from a gunshot wound. He's climbed out of his hospital bed. He's on the floor on all fours where people walk with their dirty shoes, where there are germs and microbacteria and all kinds of things. And he's cleaning up a puddle, a puddle of water to protect the nurse who's supposed to be looking after him. Now, that story perfectly illustrates, I believe, one of the characteristics every follower of Jesus Christ ought to have. We're in a series that we started the first of this month called Follow the Leader. And we've said repeatedly, and I've told you this before, nothing new, that followers of Jesus make followers of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're called to do. One of the marks that you are a follower of Jesus is you have a desire to make others followers of of Jesus. And I said a couple of weeks ago that the Christian life is very simple. It's not really complicated. Here's the Christian life in a nutshell. Jesus lead, we follow. That's it. That's the Christian life. He leads, we follow. Now, when Jesus leads and we follow, if we follow his leadership, he will lead us to lead others to follow him. Now, if you've not heard the first two messages that I preached, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to them. You can go to our website, crosspointchurch.com, and go back and hear the first couple of messages. But if you didn't, let me just kind of summarize it very, very quickly. The first, time, the first message we preached, we were talking about how we ought to see people. And we said that every person is an MVP, a most valuable person. And we learned that Jesus taught us that everybody has a body but everybody is a soul. The body's going to die. The soul really never does. Your soul is going to be in existence somewhere long after the sun's gone out of business and long after the moon has turned off its lights. Your soul is going to be in existence somewhere. And Jesus said, there is nothing more valuable on planet earth than a human soul. And we ought to see every person on this earth as an MVP, a most valuable person. Then in the second week, just to remind you, we said, you cannot lead people where they need to go until you connect with people where they are. 
You can't do it. You've got to connect with people where they are before you can lead them where they need to go. And I said to you on that Sunday, we will never have the desire, we'll never have the passion to connect with other people and build bridges with other people until we begin to see people the way Jesus saw people. And we learned that Jesus, when he saw a crowd, he saw what he called sheep without a shepherd. He saw people that were hopeless. He saw people that were helpless. That's the way Jesus saw people. Now, it is not enough just to see people the way Jesus saw people. It's not even enough just to build bridges to people and to connect with people. Because one of the greatest lessons we're going to learn about what it means to follow Jesus is found in a book of the Bible called John. If you brought a copy of God's Word, or you've got a smartphone or an iPad or whatever you might use, you don't even have to really know much about the Bible. First of all, there's an Old and New Testament. It's in the New Testament. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John chapter 13. And this is one of the most amazing stories to me in all of the Bible because it all revolves around three things. A towel, a bowl of water, and dirty, stinky, smelly feet. Now, you may ask the question, how in the world could a story about a towel and a bowl of water and dirty, stinky feet, how could that be so amazing? Well, let me give you the backdrop of the story. It's Thursday night, the night before Good Friday. Jesus is about less than 24 hours away from being crucified and dying for the sins of the world. The plot thickens with every passing second. The, 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 the smell of betrayal hangs in the air. The shadow of death hovers over the head of Jesus. He's got the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. He knows what he is about to go through. He knows he's going to go through something that no other human being could go through, ever would go through, ever will go through. And yet at one of the most crucial, maybe the most crucial time in his life, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about dirty feet. He's not even thinking about what he's got to go through. He's thinking about washing feet. Now, even if you're not a Christian or even if you don't know much about the Bible, chances are you may have heard something about this story before. I believe of all the pictures of Jesus, this may be the most amazing, incredible picture in any of the four Gospels. Because Jesus did something in this story that no self-respecting Jew would ever, ever do. As a matter of fact, no Gentile would ever do what Jesus did unless he was forced to do it. Because this was a job, this was something that only a person on the lowest rung of the social ladder, a slave, would ever do. Jesus washes dirty feet. Now, that in and of itself is not all that incredible, except... We also know there's a lot more to the story than just washing the dirty feet. And the reason we know that is because of what Jesus himself tells us. He says in John 13, verse 7, you don't realize now what I'm doing. Let me just stop right there. What do you mean you don't realize what you're doing? It's not complicated. You just took a bowl of water and washed dirty feet. Jesus said, no, there's more to it than that. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Ah, clue number one. This is not really a story about a person's feet. This is really a story about a person's heart. There's a lot more to the story than just towels and waters and feet. Because this story illustrates one of the greatest lessons you'll ever learn. Not only about what it means to follow the leader, but how blessed you become and what a blessing you can be when you do follow the leader. Because here's what we're going to take out the door this morning. The lower you go, 
the greater you are. Now, the world will tell you just the opposite. Your company will tell you just the opposite. Your corporation will tell you just the opposite. Your bank will tell you just the opposite. Harvard Business School will tell you just the opposite. They'll say, the higher you go, the greater you are. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works in the kingdom. The person that goes higher actually goes lower. The person that's greater actually becomes the lesser. And if you're going to be like Jesus, and you're going to touch people the way Jesus did, and you're going to make an eternal impact, if you really want to be remembered for the right things, there are three things that Jesus did in this story that you and I ought to do every single day of our life. Let me just stop right here and tell you, I guarantee you today, you will get the chance to do these three things for somebody today. And every day, you ought to wake up every morning and say, Lord, these are three things I want to accomplish in my life today. Now, watch how this works. Here's the first thing we need to do. We need to surrender our power. You need to surrender your power. Let me tell you why I say that. We're going to go to verse 1, and we're going to pick up the story. It was just before the Passover festival. It's Thursday night. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, let me just stop right there. I want you to really get this picture. You can't even imagine the bone-crushing, breathtaking, blood pressure-raising pressure that Jesus was under at that exact moment in his life. Because, you see, Jesus knew his time had come. He knew his journey was almost over, and he knew he would not go quietly into the night. He knew he was about to be betrayed, arrested, tried, tortured, mocked, scourged, ridiculed, beaten, spat upon, and crucified. He knew that. He knew all that was about to happen. He knew, I'm about to die, and it's not going to be pretty. I'm not going to be in a hospital bed. I'm not going to be in a, a hospice room. I'm not going to be in a nice atmosphere surrounded by disciples and my friends and my family as I kind of just go quietly into eternity. He knew he was about to go through the most terrible, the most horrible, agonizing death and time in his life that anybody would ever experience. You got it? You got the picture. Then verse 3 says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Now juxtapose this, he's about to go through the most agonizing, terrible, horrifying thing in his life that anybody could even imagine. He was about to go through something that no other human being could go through, he was the only one that could go through it. On the other hand, He's in a position no other person in history ever has been in or ever will be in. God had put everything under his power. God had put Pontius Pilate under his power. He'd put the Pharisees under his power. He'd put the high priest under his power. He'd put the Roman Empire and the Roman army under his power. And at that moment, Jesus could have very easily said, I'm not doing this. You don't deserve it. You're the one that blew it. You, 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 you dug yourself the hole. You dig yourself out of it. I don't have to do this. You can't make me do it. You can't force me to do it. You can't coerce me to do it. You can't order me to do it. At any point in this, in this process, Jesus could have stopped the arrest. He could have stopped the trial. 
He could have certainly stopped the crucifixion. He could have come down off the cross anytime he wanted. He was totally in charge. He held all the cards. He had all the power. He was over everything and everybody. So knowing he's in complete control, knowing he's totally got all the power, knowing he doesn't answer to anybody except his heavenly father, what does he do? Does he give orders? Does he throw his weight around? Does he make demands? Well, the next verse starts with this seemingly insignificant little word, so, but it's a big word. Watch this. So, knowing everything under his power, knowing he's in charge, knowing he holds all the cards, knowing he can do anything he wants to do and nobody can stop him. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, let me just stop and explain something. We don't really relate to that today because nobody washes anybody's feet anymore, right? Unless you got a little baby or something. You don't wash people's feet because today we wear shoes, socks, and so forth. Back in that day, they didn't have Nike. They didn't have Converse. They didn't have these fancy shoes. You either walked barefoot or you walked in sandals. And the problem was you didn't walk on pavement. You walked on dirt. If it rained, you walked in mud. And even if it was dry, you would sometimes walk in human excrement or animal excrement. I mean, that's just kind of the society that they lived in. As a matter of fact, if you walked into any town, and by the way, you'll still see these in the Middle East, every town had a public bath. So when you walked into a town, <clears throat> you could go to this public bath. There would be a slave there, and that slave would wash your feet. If you walked into a wealthy, very wealthy home, you would come to the home, and by the way, this is the reason why in the Middle East you still do this. When you go to a home, where's Tufik? There's Tufik right there. Tufik's my, my, my buddy over there. When you go into a home, what do you do, Tufik? You take off your shoes, even today to the Middle East. Where did they get that idea? Where did that, where did that, why do they do that? It goes all the way back to this habit. You did not walk into a home with dirty feet. So you would walk in, if you were a wealthy home, you'd walk into the threshold. There would be a slave there with a basin of water, and that slave would, would, would wash your feet. Now, in this case, the disciples had rented an upper room. Well, we, all, we know that custom always had that when you rented an upper room, you would rent a slave to go with that upper room, except in this case, for whatever the reason, I think we're going to find out, there was no slave that night. There was nobody there. So Jesus does two things to make it perfectly clear to all of his disciples what he is about to do and the role he's about to play. And I love what John does. John adds meticulous detail to let us know that Jesus takes off his outer clothing. He takes off his tunic. So what's he in? He's in his undergarments, okay? And then he wraps this towel around his waist because slaves didn't own robes. And so Jesus wraps this towel around his waist and everybody got the message. If you ever saw anybody in that day in custom with a towel around their waist, you knew what they were. They were a slave. So Jesus takes his robe off, gets down to his, un his undergarments, and then he wraps this towel around his waist. And Jesus was sending this unmistakable message to all the men in that room. He said, men, even though you know I've got all the power, even though you know I hold all the cards, even though you know I've got the keys to the car, I'm surrendering my power, and I am becoming your slave. Now, you talk about being overqualified for a job. I mean, the one who was higher than the heavens gets lower than a slave. John says he literally got lower 
than dirt. Keep in mind, Jesus is not just a man. He is a king. He's not just a king. He is the king of kings. And he leaves the throne room, goes to the linen closet. The sovereign of the universe has now become a slave to the disciples. Now, you may sit there and you may say, well, okay, so what's that got to do with me? Real simple. If you're a parent here this morning and you've got kids living in your home, you're a mom or a dad, you've got kids living in your home, you've got power over your children. If you are a, a store manager or if you're in a managerial or supervisory position, you've got employees under your power. If you are the CEO of a company or the owner of a business or you're the captain or the coach of an athletic team or you're the principal of a school or you're a teacher in a class, you've got power. You've got authority. You've got influence. And what I want you to understand this morning is this. God's given you the power that you have and God has given you the influence you have not to benefit you. God has given you that power and God has given you that benefit so you will use it to benefit others. See, when nobody else will take up the towel, a follower of Jesus will say, I'll take up the towel. A follower of Jesus is willing to do what other people aren't willing to do. They're willing to go where other people aren't willing to go. A follower of Jesus gets up every morning and he says, Lord, just for today, where everybody else is taking, I'll be a giver. Where everybody else is sitting down, I'll stand up. Where everybody else is staying silent, I will speak up. I'll serve when no one else will. Now, let's just say, let's say the obvious here. All those disciples could see those dirty feet, and they could smell those dirty feet. I mean, you, you do know how, how they were in that room. They weren't sitting at tables. They didn't have tables. They were reclining. That means they were lying on their, on their, on their side like this, and somebody's feet was in their face. So nobody had to, you didn't have to say to Peter, Peter, your feet stink. Everybody knew their feet stunk. Everybody knew their feet was dirty. I mean, that was very obvious to everybody. But the question is, well, why didn't they do something about it? Because they had the same problem that we all in this room have. Every day they got up, they looked in a mirror. Every day they got up, their focus was on themselves. Every day they got up, they said, I got one job. I'm looking out for number one. I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to make sure my needs are met. I'm going to make people look out for me, except Jesus. Jesus wasn't looking out for number one. He was looking out for numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. While everybody else was focused on themselves, Jesus was focused on others. He took the power that he had. All things are under my feet. God's given me all this power. And Jesus said, I'm going to leverage my power for your benefit. First thing we ought to do. Second thing you ought to do is serve other people. Surrender your power, serve other people. Now, this is where this is important. See, there's, there's a reason why. When you read this story, you do have to wonder, why didn't one of these disciples, couldn't one of these guys stand up and say, okay, I'll do it? Why, why did everybody else wait on everybody else to do what anybody could have done? Well, here's what you don't know. Luke tells us that before they went to the upper room, just before they had this, this last meal, they had actually got into an argument. And, 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 and it went like this. I want you to listen to what happened. This is what they'd been arguing about just before they went into the upper room. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them. 
call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? See, here was the problem. They weren't interested in serving. They were interested in ruling. They weren't looking for service. They were looking for service. They weren't looking for how low they could go. They were looking for how high they could climb. And see, now this whole story takes on so much more meaning because I can just imagine. Now, they just got this big argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be number one? Who's going to be on the high seat? And now Jesus is putting on this towel, and I can just imagine this conversation. You know, if you just think about it, that they're, you know, they're, they start talking about um, among themselves. Somebody said, um, hey, James, how, how about you doing this? James says, oh, I don't do feet. Well, Andrew, how about you? I clean fish, but fish make me, you know, feet make me break out. Well, um, but Bartholomew, would you do it? Oh, dirty feet make me sick. Well, Matthew, hey, Matthew, you're up for it, aren't you? Matthew says, I work for the IRS. I don't wash dirty feet. I tax them. Well, um, Judas, how about you do it, wouldn't you? Man, I wish I could, but I'm late for an appointment. And then Peter, Peter, you'll do it. I can't, guys, because I keep them in my mouth all the time. So it doesn't take long to realize, right? It doesn't take long to realize there's something wrong with this picture. Here are the hands of the Son of a holy God and the Holy Son of God washing the dirty feet of unholy, sinful men. You say, man, that's just not right. I agree. The disciples ought to be washing his feet. As a matter of fact, they should have been fighting over the privilege of washing his feet. They should have been getting in line saying, let me do it. No, let me do it. No, let me do it. But while the basin of water sits in the corner and while the towel's hanging on the rack, what are they doing? They're arguing over who ought to be number one in the kingdom. They're arguing who ought to get to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom. And then Jesus does for them what they were not willing to do for him. And let me just show you how this works. Let me show you why the Bible's so relevant. You think the Bible, just because it was written thousands of years ago, you think it doesn't have relevance today? Let me show you how just relevant the Bible is because nothing has changed. You say, what do you mean? We still ask totally different questions than what Jesus asked. The disciples were asking, so who's going to wash feet today? And Jesus was asking, whose feet do I start with? We ask, so how much money do you make? Jesus asked, how much money do you give? We ask, how many employees do you have in your company? Jesus asked, how many employees do you serve in your company? We ask totally different questions because we focus on totally different things. We Count all the people that report to us. Jesus wants to count all the people that we serve. And by the way, you don't get to pick and choose who you serve either. Let's kind of get all of this out, okay? You can't just serve people that you like. You have to serve people that you don't. You can't just serve people that like you. You have to serve people sometimes that don't like you. Say, so where do you get that idea? Remember verse 2? 
The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon and Carius, to betray Jesus. Here's a disciple. His feet were caked with the dirt of disloyalty. He's about to walk out that door and stab Jesus right in the back. He's about to go and become the greatest traitor in the history of the world. But you know what Jesus did? Washed his feet just the same. You do know this. Even though when Judas left, he had a filthy heart, but he had clean feet. You say, wow, that's unbelievable. No, it's not. Because part of following the leader is taking the high road. I hear so many people talk about taking the high road. A lot of people talk about taking the high road, don't even know what the high road is, and they can't even find it. Because you know what the high road is? Can I tell you what taking the high road is? Here's the high road. It's when you're willing to treat other people better than the way they have treated you. That's the high road. Judas, you're about to betray me, but I'm going to wash your feet. Judas, you're about to stab me in the back, but I'm going to wash your feet. Judas, you're about to commit the greatest sin perhaps in the history of the human race other than unbelief in me yourself, and yet I'm going to wash your feet. Because why? Jesus said, that's what I came to do, to serve other people. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's how you'll know it. There will be a willingness in your heart to do for others what they're not willing to do for you. But now let me just say this last thing, we're done. I could stop the message right here and I would have accomplished something. You know what I would have accomplished? Making some of you feel guilty. Yeah, I'm not doing much in the church, and I know I, you've whipped me real good. You've made me feel real bad, and so I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll go serve in the nursery or the preschool, or I'll do this, or I'll do that, or I'll go help park cars, and you're going to do it out of guilt, and that will last about two weeks because guilt is not a motivator because if you don't take the third step, the first two won't work. Yes, you have to surrender your power. Yes, you need to serve other people. But this is the key to all of it. The third thing you need to be doing is you need to share your passion. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If I were to say to you, so what do you think is the most important part of this story? Oh, you say, well, most important part, you've already said it, man. The Son of God washed the feet of these dirty, no good, ungrateful, lazy disciples. That's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of this story is not what he did, it's why he did it. Why did Jesus do this? He tells us. You don't have to wonder. We know exactly why he did it. The secret's found in the last sentence of verse 1. Listen to it. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now watch this. For three years... Twelve men had been loved like nobody had ever loved them. Their mama hadn't loved them like Jesus loved them. Their dad had not loved them like Jesus loved him, loved them. Their best buddies had not loved them like Jesus had loved them. Their wife and their children had not loved them like Jesus loved them. For three years, Jesus loved them like they had never been loved in their life. And for three years, Jesus modeled a love for them that they had never, ever seen in their life. And for three years, Jesus had been trying to teach them by his example, this is what love is all about. Now school's about out. The last lesson is about to be taught. And they now know if you're going to love others, boys, the towel's got to come off. The towel's got to get off the rack or around your waist. 
And you gotta fill that bowl with water and you gotta get your feet dirty if you're really going to love other people. So now we can grasp what Jesus said in verse 15. Because when all this was over, he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, let me just stop right there and just let you know something. There are some churches and some people that have taken that verse literally and said, oh, okay, so every time we come together, we're supposed to wash people's feet, and there are foot-washing churches. I'm not making fun of them. I'm not making light of them. They come every Sunday, and they wash each other's feet. If That's fine. I'm not knocking them. I'm just glad I don't go to that church, okay? That's just me, all right? But here's the problem. Jesus was not telling us that we ought to have another ritual in the church we do every Sunday, like washing other people's feet. Nothing wrong with that. But the word as in the Greek language literally means according as. And what Jesus was saying was this. I'm not saying that every time you come together, you ought to wash each other's feet. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is every time you get the chance, think like a foot washer. Have a foot washing attitude. Be willing to do whatever you can to serve somebody else. Always see how you can serve others and don't worry about how others can serve you. And he said, guys, remember why you serve others. Because when you serve other people, you should not serve other people so they'll pat you on the back, tell you what a great guy you are, so you'll get a watch when you retire, so people put a black on the wall. That's not why you serve people. He said, the reason why you ought to serve people is that's the way you show what love's all about. That's, what, that's the way you show other people that you love them. That's the way you show other people your passion for them. Because this also sheds light on one other part of this story, okay? He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, let me just stop right there. If you know anything about the 12 disciples, if I'd said to you before, before, if you didn't know this story, and I told you the story up to this point, and I said, okay, one of those disciples is going to buck Jesus. One of those disciples said, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You would have guessed Peter, right? Everybody in this room would have guessed Peter. Peter's one of those guys, you know, you, there's, they're in every crowd. They won't shut up. They're going to tell you their opinion, whether you like it or not. And they may be wrong, but they're never in doubt, okay? That's Peter. That was Peter, Right? And so Peter says, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You ever heard of acid reflux? Peter had idiot reflex, okay? He, 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 he's just got this attitude. He says, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, you better let me. You're about to put them in your mouth. You better let me wash your feet. But, but see, here's what I want you to see. When you first look at that, you say, well, at least Peter, I, I got to give him credit. At least Peter had enough gumption to say, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Oh, no, that's not the way to look at it. No, Peter's response, he wasn't just being honest about himself. Peter was being honest about us. Why did Peter say, oh, you're not going to wash my feet? Why did he say that? Real easy. He's embarrassed. He knows he's been caught. He says, look, I get it. You're going to do for me what I should have done for you. You're going to do for all of us what we should have done for you and done for each other. And you think, well, that was a good attitude. No, read the whole story. Yeah, Peter did say, you're not going to wash my feet. But you notice something he didn't say? He still didn't say, but I'll be more than glad to wash yours. 
You say, yeah, why is that? Okay, kind of tighten your seatbelt a little bit. Because there are times, and I'm just going to be honest, there are times that we will say things in this church you won't hear in a lot of other churches. And I don't mean this to sound ugly. We're not seeker-friendly. We're truth-friendly. That's just where we are. The real reason that Peter did not wash Jesus' feet was not because he was allergic to dirty feet. It's not because he thought he was too good to wash dirty feet. Not because there was something repulsive about washing dirty feet. Here's the reason why he didn't wash Jesus' feet. Because he didn't love Jesus the way he needed to love Jesus. He didn't love Jesus the way Jesus loved him. He wasn't willing to wash his buddy's feet because he didn't love his buddies the way Jesus loved his buddies. So let me just kind of, here we go. You ready? Buckle up. See, the reason why we don't do a lot of things we know we should be doing is not because of the reason we think we don't do them. An example. Well, I, I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't try to make followers of Jesus. And I don't try to make followers of Jesus because I'm, I don't know how. I'm too shy. I've got a personality disorder. I've never been trained. I didn't go to seminary. I don't know this. I don't know that. No. The reason why you're not trying to make followers of Jesus is because you don't love Jesus the way you ought to love Jesus. And you don't love people the way you ought to love people. End of story. 50% of the people in every church, as far as I know, this has never, ever been, never wavered. 50% of the people that attend a church never give any money to the church, never. So let me just stop right here. Some of you are saying, oh, dear God, I just brought a guest here. He's talking about giving. No, not talking about giving. Because here's what we say. Well, I don't give because I can't afford it. I don't give because I owe too much. I don't give because I mismanaged my money. I don't know enough, enough. The reason why 50% of the people come to a church every single Sunday and pass the basket and never even think of that, don't worry about giving is because you don't love Jesus the way you ought to love Jesus. End of story. Because to love people is to serve people. To love people is to serve people. When you love Jesus, you say, Jesus, how can I serve you? Well, you can give to my work. Yes, Lord. Jesus, how can I serve you? By making other disciples. Yes, Lord. Jesus, how can, I, how can I love you? How can I serve you? You can serve me by spending time with me and reading, reading, reading the word of God and praying to me and just having fellowship with me. When you serve other people, you show them that you love them. Let me show you how this works. You remember after the resurrection, about several weeks later, he, Jesus with the disciples, he's having a conversation. Some of you remember this because you know your Bible pretty well. Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples and he singles Peter out. And I think he did it because of what happened this night. He singles Peter out and he asked Peter a question. Not once, not twice, but three times he asked Peter the question. Somebody tell me, what did he ask Peter? Yeah, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked Peter. Peter, do you love me? First time Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Third time, Peter's really getting ticked. Peter, do you really love me? He said, Lord, you know I love you. Why do you keep asking me? And then do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? What did he say to him? Feed my sheep. Serve other people. Leverage your power for the good of somebody else. That's how you show me that you love me. Now, let me, let me show you how this wraps up. We're going to be done. As a husband, I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to Donald Trump you here. 
As a husband, I am biblically the head of my home. Now, I know that is not politically correct. And I know there may be some, some ladies out there, that are right, and your blood pressure just went off the chart. Because you're saying, I can't believe you're still thinking in an antiquated way. You know why people have trouble with a man being the head of the home? Because they don't even understand what we mean when we say that. Let me tell you what I mean when we say that. I am the head of my home. That does not mean that I crack a whip and I order Teresa around and she does everything I tell her to do. Okay? I tried that once. I was in the hospital for a month. Okay? I don't do that anymore. I am the head of my home. Let me tell you what that means. As the head of my home, my number one responsibility is to love her. My primary job is to serve her. I am the father of three sons. My number one job is to love my sons. My number one responsibility is to serve my sons. I'm the pastor of this church. My number one responsibility, my number one job, my number one responsibility and calling is to love you. And my number one job is to serve you. I can say with a clear conscience, it's never entered my mind that I do what I do because you're supposed to serve me. That's not the way it works. You're not supposed to serve me. I'm supposed to serve you. We serve him together. I'm the leader of our staff. My number one job is to love my staff and my number one responsibility is to serve my staff. That's the way it works. And the point I want you to understand is everything God has given us in terms of authority, in terms of power, in terms of position is not to benefit us. It's to be leveraged for the benefit of other people. So I want to close with this. Most of us carry around in our pocket that. By far and away, it is the most recognizable piece of paper in the world. And that piece of paper, that um, currency, has someone's picture on it. We all know who it is. That's George Washington. Still to this day, considered by many the greatest American of all, the man that led the American Republic, led the Ruthless Revolutionary Army to defeat the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He served as the first president of the United States. I could go on and on and on. He wasn't perfect. I get that. I know my history like you do. I understand that. But I want you to understand the reason why he's on the dollar bill. I want you to understand why they wanted that number around his name. It's not because of what you think. This is not what made him famous. The reason why he's so respected, and the reason why he's on this dollar bill, and the reason why he was the most beloved countryman probably in the history of this nation at the time that he lived was because he spent all of his life doing three things. Surrendering his power, serving other people, and showing his passion. I'm going to show you how this works, sharing his passion. When, when, when he was elected president of the United States, well, let me go back. When he was asked to command the Revolutionary Army, they came and said, nobody can lead the army but you. When he was asked to command the Revolutionary Army, he said, I will take charge of the army under two conditions. Number one, the army must understand that they answer to the people, not the other way around. That had never been said in the history of this world. Everybody had always understood. If you got the, you got the power, you know, you got the control. The people, and he said, no. If I'm going to take control of the army, the people are responsible. They are in authority. The army is subservient to them. Couldn't believe it. Number two, 
When this war is over, if we win, I will immediately resign my commission. He did that, true to his word. He kept both of those pledges. He made sure the army was always subservient to the people, and he resigned his commission. When he was elected president of the United States, they wanted to make him king. They begged him to become king. He refused. He's the only man in the history of this country that was elected unanimously to the office of president. Not once, twice was elected unanimously. They begged him to run a third term. He refused, setting a precedent that every other president followed except up until Franklin Roosevelt. When the war was over, he was universally recognized, not only the most respected man in America, the most respected man in the world. He was the most famous man in all world. Everybody knew about George Washington. He could have established himself as a king. He could have said, I'm going to be the dictator, and they would have gladly let him. As a matter of fact, before they had the Constitutional Convention, the power brokers came to him and said, we will not even think about writing a constitution until you make one promise to us. He said, what's that? They said, we already kind of know what kind of government we're going to set up. It's going to be led by a president. Unless you promise to let us make you president, we're not even going to have this Constitutional Convention. That's how revered he was. So at the end, of, his, at the end of, his, of the Revolutionary War, could have been anything you wanted to be, had anything you wanted to have, do anything you wanted to do. And the American painter, Benjamin West, who painted a lot of pictures of, 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 of President Washington, happened to be in England, and he got an audience with King George III. King George III called him in, and he said, I've got to ask you a question. He said, now that the war is over, this, this Washington, he said, he's popular everywhere. Even here in, in the British Isles, he's so respected and so revered. He said, I just got to know, what's he going to do? And Benjamin West said, well, sire, from what I've heard, he's going to return to his farm. To which King George replied, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. Now, let me just say this, and we're going to say amen. The greatest man who's ever lived in the history of this planet showed all of us in this room how to be great. And he didn't just take up a towel. He took up a cross. And he washed the dirty filth of sin off of our hearts, and he didn't do it with water. He did it with his own blood. And that great leader said, if you will follow me, here's what will happen. You'll go low. You'll get dirty. You'll take up the towel. You'll surrender your power. You'll serve other people. You'll share your passion. And in doing so, you will be great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.